Father, you didn't need to speak. You didn't need to come after us. You didn't need to pursue us. You did not need to intervene. But you did all those things. And as we'll see this morning, you did all those things because of grace. Your grace is your love on the move. It's your love in hot pursuit of your people. And we pray this morning that you would strengthen us according to your word. Holy Spirit, we depend on you all the time. We depend on you in these next 30 minutes. And ask both as I preach and as we hear your preaching that you would help us to understand the work of Christ with greater and greater clarity. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I can remember kneeling in my bedroom as an elementary school kid and praying that God would save me. I knew in some sense that I was a sinner and I knew I couldn't fix the problem because I'd try not to sin, but I would sin again. And I knew that it was right for God to judge sin. I saw sin and I knew it wasn't right and I saw it in other people and there's a sense in which we know that things that are wrong need to be judged. And I knew that God loved me, and I knew that he came to rescue me. But then a few weeks later, I found myself on my knees again, praying pretty much the same exact prayer. And that happened a lot. I lacked confidence. And our wrestling match against doubt doesn't end when we are adults. Our sin struggles can cast doubt into our hearts as well. To be sure, there is a right way for us to think about sin and to think critically about sin and to evaluate our lives in light of the sins that we're struggling with. But in the wake of sin, it is also possible that a tide of doubt can rush into our hearts, like the ocean tide running into the shore. We may wonder, God may tolerate me, but does he really love me? Does he really delight in me? When I come to him in prayer, is he excited to hear from me? We may wonder and say that there's no way that God could delight in me, not when I've returned to the same sin struggles over and over again, not when I make promises that I just don't seem able to keep. It may feel that the joy and the romance of our salvation has been lost, lost in the storm clouds of our own spiritual failures. We just don't feel the joy of our salvation that maybe we once felt. We wonder if the gospel is winning in our hearts and life or not. But for others of you here, you may be so enslaved to the shame of past decisions that you've made that you can't even bring yourself to approach God. You don't even want to admit that there is a God, because if you admit that there is a God, then you have to take your own decisions in the past seriously. You have to acknowledge that you've, in some ways, rebelled against the God who created and loved you. And if you're honest, you doubt that there is a God merciful enough to forgive. And that's what haunts you in the quiet moments. Now, at least part of the problem with all of these situations is 
we tend to underestimate God's grace in salvation, that God has a decisive role in salvation. We underestimate His role. But the second part of the problem is that we misunderstand the role of our good works in salvation. We misunderstand what counts on us and what relies upon God. We put too much faith in ourselves. We put too much on ourselves, and we don't rely enough on God's power to save His people because we don't actually believe or we struggle to believe that there is a God so just and so merciful that He could actually do these things on our behalf. The main idea this morning is that God saved us so that we would represent Him in the world, that God graciously saved us so that we would faithfully represent Him in the world. And I'm going to hang all of this on two points. The first point is that our our gracious Redeemer. The second point, His faithful representatives. In verses 8 and 9, our gracious Redeemer, what did God do? Paul is clear that God does everything to save His people. God does everything to save His people. And he makes it clear that faith is our response as human beings to His grace. God's grace, as I mentioned in my prayer, is God's love on the move. God decisively intervenes because He feels a kind favor toward us as His people. Grace is the life-saving, life-creating medicine that settles our debt, that defeats death, and that ushers in eternal blessings. That's what God's grace is. It is the medicine that creates life. And God's grace costs God. That medicine costs God a great deal. The Son of God needs to be killed so that God's rebel children can be freed. God's love is not static. It pursues. It does not stand still. It initiates. It acts. God rescues. He redeems. He restores. He reconciles. This is what God's love provokes God to do. In Colossians chapter 1, we read that you, that's all of us, who were once alienated, separated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God's grace is the life-saving medicine. And if God's grace is the life-saving medicine, then faith is the needle or the syringe through which God's grace flows. Faith is our response to the Redeemer's grace. Faith is how we access or receive or grab a hold of God's salvation. Faith throws its arms around Jesus. It trusts, it relies, it depends. And you see a baby or let's say you see a two-year-old in their parents' arms, and they're throwing their arms around their parents' neck. We know whose strength is holding that child in that parent's arms. Faith stops us from swimming. It turns us over onto our backs, and it allows us to rest in the work of the life preserver. It allows us to float when otherwise we're desperate to swim. In Romans 11, verse 6, we read that if it is by grace, that is, if salvation is by grace, it is no longer 
on the basis of works. Paul is saying it can't be both. If it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If in our minds we're calculating and we're saying it's 99% grace and it's 1% me, then Paul says it is no longer grace, but it is of works because that 1% turns God's grace into your work. Because notice that we're saved as a gift. Paul says it's not your own doing, it's not your own working. Salvation is not a paycheck that we receive for a job well done. Salvation is not a reward for a project well executed. That's not what salvation is. Our salvation is a gift. We are not entitled to salvation. It is not owed. It is not earned. It is not merited. It is not deserved. It is a gift. It is not the result of any works that we have done. And we can't even view faith as a work. We can't view faith as a cause for salvation. Faith can't be something that we let ourselves take credit for, or as we'll see in a moment, there is cause for boasting. Here's Martin Lloyd-Jones. We must always be careful never to say that it is our belief that saves us. Belief doesn't save. Faith does not save. Christ saves. Christ and His finished work, not my belief, not my faith, not my understanding, nothing that I do, not of yourselves, Boasting is excluded by grace through faith. But let's not take it from Martin Lloyd-Jones. In Romans 3.23, Paul says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are in need of rescue, in other words, and are justified, that is, declared righteous by the judge, by His grace, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a satisfaction by His blood to be received by faith. Or Hebrews 12, 2, where the writer says, Look to Jesus, the founder of your faith and the perfecter of your faith, who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, we've come to a place so far where we must recognize that salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift that is given. The question is, why does God give such a gift? Why is the king gracious? Why does the king want to redeem? Why would you pursue us, God? We who were rebels, we who turned from you, We who rejected your offer to live with you in perfect love and in brilliant light and in eternal life, why would you pursue rebels who turned away from you, who ridiculed your holiness, who rebelled against your plans and purposes for us? I would ask you why any parent of a rebellious child pursues them and longs for them to turn. It's for love. It is always for love. Ephesians 2.4, we looked at this two, three weeks ago. But God, being rich in mercy, He is not impoverished. The mercy category is not impoverished. He is rich in mercy, and He is great in love. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, 
even while, even when we were dead in our trespasses, our sins made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul almost blurts this out earlier in the letter. He just can't help himself from saying it, by grace you have been saved. And now a few verses later, he returns to that same idea, by grace you have been saved. And this is critical. Two things are true. Two things are true. First, you don't deserve salvation and you can't earn salvation. That's the first thing that's true. You don't deserve it and you can't earn it. That's the first thing that's true. Second, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The first thing that's true is that you don't, I don't deserve God's salvation. I can't earn God's salvation. But in that state, in that place, while we were still sinners, while we were still under condemnation, that's when Christ died for us. And do you feel the surge of warmth in this? On the one hand, we are not entitled to God's grace, but because of his great love and his rich mercy, God rushes into the ocean while we are drowning in our sin. He rushes into the ocean while we are drowning in our own sin. Desperately, our eyes search for help. He reaches down and he grabs us out of the water while it begins to rise and bounce above our heads. And he lifts us up into his arms and he commands the wind and the waves, peace be still. Why is God in the water? Why is he rushed into the ocean? If you say it is because I've lived a pretty good life. I'm a good person. I have faith. I didn't do evil. He saw my faith. If you say any of those things, then you misunderstand the nature of our rescue. God decisively moves into the ocean to save sinners drowning in their sin because he loved us, because he loves you. It is not because you, you're not as rebellious as the next guy a hundred yards down the beach. It is not because you've cleaned up your life. Even while we were dead in trespasses, even while we were still a sinner, he intervened because of love. And do you see why God said, Paul says that there is no room to boast of our own contribution? God saves us in such a way that we cannot boast except in the cross of Christ. You have not done work to convince God that you are worthy of saving. That's not why he's in the water. It is the intensity of his love for sinners for his children who have turned away from him. It is the intensity of his love that drives him and propels him into the ocean of our sin to rescue us. He just loves you while you were still a sinner. Paul uses the Greek word ergon in verses 9 and 10. It's used only twice in Ephesians it's used 169 times in the New Testament. 
And it means to work or to accomplish, to pursue tasks, deeds, actions. Paul explains by using this word the relationship between works and salvation. In verse 9, he says, salvation is not a result of works. That's the first thing he wants us to understand about this word. Salvation is not the result of works. You didn't make yourself savable so that he would come into the ocean to save you. We see this in Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, notice the loving kindness and the goodness. When it appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. That is not why he got into the ocean. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, our works, our effort do not merit or earn salvation. That's Paul's point in using that word in verse 9. Our works do not merit or earn salvation. There is not room for man to boast in the wake of his or her salvation. Did Noah get off the ark? Does he get off the ark and boast about the masterful construction that preserved him through the flood? No, he boasts in God's preserving strength. Does Israel arrive on the far side of the Red Sea and boast in their own astounding power? No. They boast in what God has done to preserve and protect them. Does the once dead Lazarus boast of his might when he comes out of the tomb? No, he boasts in Jesus' deafening authority over death. Does the sinner, dead in trespasses and sins, disobedient along with the world, deceived by Satan and destined for wrath, does that sinner boast of his contribution to salvation? No. Far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6, 14. Do you see how firmly our confidence is anchored in the bedrock of God's gracious commitment to us? Do you see how firmly our confidence is anchored not in ourselves, but in the bedrock of God's gracious to commitment to us to save us not through our works, but through Christ's work? God be praised. Our faith is His righteousness, not our own. Christian, who is left to condemn us? Who is left to condemn us? when the source of our redemption is Jesus' holiness, not our own. Who is left to condemn us? Christian, tell me what is left for us to fear when Jesus defeated every single one of our enemies while and by agonizing and dying on the cross. Has he not won us back from slavery and death and rebellion? Christian, where can shame wag its finger in our face when all our confidence is wrapped up in Christ? When shame mutters its condemnations, you point to the once slain, then risen, now reigning Jesus, 
and you say to the condemnation, He is my righteousness. He is my intercessor. He is my life. He is my hope. He is my righteousness. It is not found in me. Christian, how can death credibly threaten us? How can death credibly threaten us when our hope for eternal life is bound up in Christ? Even now, seated at the right hand of the Father. And we, Paul says three weeks ago, are seated with Him in the heavenly places. Do you see how firmly our confidence is in the bedrock of God's gracious commitment to us? It is not in anything we bring. So what of those who are recipients of the Redeemer's grace? So what of the church? What do we do, we who are recipients of God's grace, who grab a hold of that by faith? What are we to do? Do we just sit tight in the world and wait? In verse 10, Paul tells us that we are his faithful representatives. That God does not save us because of our good works, but God saves us to do good works. God created his people as his workmanship in Jesus for good works. Workmanship is used here, and it's used in Romans 1, chap, uh, Romans 1 verse 20. And in Romans 1 verse 20, the workmanship is used of God's work at creation. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, workmanship, the things that have been made, the workmanship of God have put on display things about God that are clearly perceived to the point that all of us are without excuse. All who are able, who are old enough to perceive as we look at God's workmanship in creation, as we look at that and know there is a God, a divine one who created. And clearly, he's powerful. That is workmanship. Creation's purpose then, in part at least, is to put God's eternal power and divine nature on display. That's part of what God's creation is intended to do. So the Himalayan mountains and bobcats, and magnolia trees, and butterflies all proclaim that God exists, that there is a God, and He is powerful, and He stands outside of time and space. Creation is God's workmanship. And then in Ephesians 2, Paul uses the same word again, and he proclaims the result of this new creation, this new workmanship that God has created a new creation that God has ushered in, His people. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul says, church, Christian, you're a new creation. You are God's workmanship. And so we become his faithful representatives in the world. We become like the Himalayan mountains, and we say to the world around us, God exists. He is alive. 
And his power is on display, not only in creating the Himalayan mountains, but in creating the church. A once condemned, once rebellious, now redeemed and glorious people. We are a new workmanship. We are set apart and precious to him, and we put his power and divine nature on display. We are his faithful representatives in creation and in history. We are rescued out of the world, but we are not taken home. We are left here to put him on display. We love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we do these things in the power that the gospel provides, in the power that the Spirit provides, we proclaim him to the world around us. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is why we exist. We are the Himalayan mountains. We tell the world that God exists, but we can say more than that. Because he's given us his word. He's told us specifically how he's come to rescue us, that he is a redeeming God and he longs for the nations to come. The artist has authority to explain the design intent. She can tell us the purpose for her creation. We are God's workmanship. We are redeemed out of slavery to new life that we may display good works so that we might represent him faithfully in creation, so that we, we, we would display his power and his love. We are ambassadors. We are emissaries. We are envoys. We are representatives. We together are an embassy in this world representing the rule of the king of the next and to serve as his prophetic voice, to be faithful representatives, to speak on his behalf and to live on his behalf, we must subordinate every other identity to being his faithful representatives, which means every other identity needs to be less important and less consuming than being his faithful representatives. That is the core. You peel back the onion all the way to the core and you find we are a redeemed people here to make him known. And everything else that flows from that core is as his faithful representatives. So when we're hanging out with friends at school or on the soccer field or in the neighborhood, we are more focused in those moments at making Christ known in the things that we say and the things that we do than fitting in with the people around us. We are more concerned in those moments in making Christ known, letting people see him, being the Himalayan mountains to that group of friends. And that will motivate us toward right thinking and right behaving and right speaking. Or when we're in political conversations, we're willing to contradict our tribe when our tribe advocates something that Jesus resists. Because at the core of the onion, we are his faithful representatives. And so we're willing to speak against our tribe when our tribe advocates for something that Jesus resists. We are willing to speak prophetically for Jesus 
no matter the audience that's in front of us, because we understand ourselves to be His faithful representatives. So children or adults, I'm basically saying that being His faithful representatives in this world is more important than fitting in or succeeding. It's more important. We're willing to lose in this world if it means faithfulness to Jesus. We're okay standing completely alone as His people if that's what it takes. We're willing to swim upstream. We are okay with standing the winds of culture, not so we can swagger and strut. This comes from a place, this willingness to stand alone if need be, is because we have been loved. We've been treasured. We've been pursued. And so we'll stand alone. We will stand firm and represent Him because we understand that we are His workmanship and we are His faithful representatives in creation. And this isn't optional for His people. God expects us to walk out the good works that He has prepared for us in advance. Being His workmanship is not optional. The fact that we are His representatives, that we our recipients of God's redemption doesn't result in a life of moral complacency. Moral complacency is out of bounds for God's faithful representatives. In verse 9, Paul says that you are not saved because of your works. And in verse 10, he says, you are saved for your works. You are saved to do good works. He says it also in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Your body is the temple, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You're saved to do good works. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. I want you to insist on these things, Titus, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things, these good works are excellent and profitable for all people. God has prepared a role for us in advance. He knows the steps we'll take. He knows the places we'll sit. He knows the number of days we'll walk the earth. And He wants us to walk the earth faithfully as His representatives in the world. This is the whole structure of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He's telling us in the first three chapters, here's who you are because of Christ. This is who you are. You are recipients and heirs and participants. You are beneficiaries and members and partakers and the dwelling of God on the earth. This is who you are, church. He spends the whole first three chapters telling us our identity because of the gospel. And then he turns he tells us to pursue, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what good works does Paul have in mind? All that you do as his representatives, your whole life as his people, that's the good work. And you can represent him accurately. You can represent him accurately. You can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You can walk out your gospel identity faithfully or you can inaccurately represent the gospel. 
But God's heart for his church is that our gospel ethics would match our gospel identity. And so in chapters 4 through 6, which we'll come to in January, we read, pursue unity, build up the church, put on righteousness, kill your sin, walk in love and light, depend upon the Spirit, pursue Christ-exalting marriages, seek God-honoring families, practice God-fearing work relationships, engage the spiritual battle, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, do good works, represent Him faithfully in creation. You are the Himalayan mountains. Show the world what God is like. But more than that, tell the world how to be saved. Tell them how to be saved in Christ. Are you walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? Are you walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? Are we, as a church family, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? Are we faithfully representing Him in the world? There is a way of walking humbly with our sin. We will limp with our sin until we make it home. And there is a way of walking humbly with our sin. We grieve it. We pray for the Spirit's help to fight it. We confess our sins to others. There is a humble way to walk and limp with our sin until glory. And then there is a way of walking arrogantly with our sin. There is a way that we secretly love it, revealed in our lack of willingness to turn from it. There is a way in which we ignore the Spirit's conviction. There is a way in which we hide our sins from others. And if you are grieving your sin this morning, if you're grieving it, remember the gracious love of our Redeemer. Remember that it counts upon Christ's righteousness, not your own. But if you are loving your sin this morning, if you are loving your sin this morning, if you are not turning from it with all your strength, if you are not depending on the Spirit's power, if you are not opening up to others, then test yourself. Test yourself. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, that no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, and nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Test yourself test yourself. We are, as a church, in a season of intense struggle with suffering and with sin. Kick your struggles into the light. Kick your struggles with sin and suffering into the light. The longer you leave it in the darkness, the harder it will be, and the greater the consequences will be when you finally bring it into the light. Kick your struggles with sin and suffering into the light with a trusted Christian friend or with an elder. This is what the church does. This is our thing. We bring our sins to one another so that we might apply for one another the grace of the gospel, that we might help one another turn from sin, drinking the medicine of God's grace and turning from our sins. Our counseling team will walk with you and helping you turn from your sin to Jesus. It's what they've been trained to do. And as we turn from our sin, we do so. We turn knowing 
the gracious Redeemer still loves us, and He always will. If you're a Christian, you are saved today totally and only through God's grace in the cross. What a firm foundation. He has done everything, and we are His forever. And if you're a Christian, you are saved by His grace to do good works in the world. Church family, we have an opportunity to faithfully represent our gracious Redeemer in the world. We can live happily constrained to His Word, confidently empowered by His Spirit. We can live that way and experience the joy and the romance of our salvation, proclaiming in clear words and in good deeds that we belong to God and this world is not our home. And for as long as God gives us breath, we will work hard at our jobs, letting our light shine before men. We will share the hope of the gospel. We will raise up a new generation. Whether or not we have children, we will raise up another generation to treasure Christ. And we will devote ourselves to His Word. And we will pray without ceasing. And we will long and love for the appearing of our King. And if you're not a Christian, I say without hesitation and without apology that love like this, that we have described Together this morning, it does not exist in creation. It's not there. Love like this is only found in our gracious Redeemer. This God, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord, it proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. Psalm 1830. So come to your refuge this morning. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. God graciously saved us so that we would faithfully represent Him in the world. Let's pray. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.